good morning, church. Hey, as we continue our worship service, I wanted to lead us in a brief time of prayer for our country. As you know, uh, election day is drawing near. In fact, we only have this Sunday and next Sunday before the election. And so I just wanted to remind you of two simple truths uh, and then lead us in a time of prayer. And, and the first truth is simply this. No matter what happens on election day, uh, and no matter who is elected, Jesus is still king of the universe, ruling on his throne. And so maybe uh, we already know that, we've heard that, but I just want to remind you, church, that no matter what happens, uh, Jesus is still in control. Jesus is still king. And so uh, rather than being tempted to despair or be distraught at the results, whichever way they shake out, just a reminder that we can have confidence and hope in the future because we believe and trust in King Jesus. And so that's the first truth I wanted to remind us of this morning. And the second is simply is that because Jesus is the King of the universe ruling on his throne, our ultimate allegiance is to him. And so as you vote, whether you're going to the ballot box, whether you're yeah, going to uh, in-person voting, whether you're filling something out at home, just a reminder that as you do that, you do so with your primary allegiance to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. And you want to represent him well in how you vote. Now, I know uh, we're going to probably land in some different places on different issues or people that we're voting for, but, but we all should approach it with that posture of, Lord, uh, I uh, my allegiance is to you first. And so how do you want me to love you, to love my neighbors with my voting uh, and, and steward that well? So Jesus, no matter what, come November 4th and on uh, past that, or again, November 3rd, but beyond that, Jesus is still king and our ultimate allegiance thus is to him. Uh, would you join me in a word of prayer then for our country? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope and unshakable confidence we can have uh, in you because you are sovereign. You are the king of the universe. You rule and reign above all earthly human kings and rulers. And so, Lord, our trust is in you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us hope and joy uh, to handle these next few weeks really wisely. Lord, would you guard us and protect us from despair uh, over the results of this election? God, may we show our neighbors and the world around us that, hey, our confidence is in, in you, not any political party or political leader. And God, we pray for wisdom for our nation, that you would help us uh, vote uh, with wisdom, with insight, with love for you, with love for our neighbors. We pray that your will would be done. Uh, and in humility, we acknowledge, Lord, we don't know how all things are going to shake out or exactly how they're supposed to shake out, Lord, but we just pray that your will would be done that you would guide our nation and whoever is elected uh, to uh, the role of president or uh, mayors and, and governors and everything else that is up for uh, election, we pray that you would give our leaders and politicians wisdom and insight to uh, lead in such a way that our nation would be blessed, that the world would be blessed, that you would be honored, that there would be peace and justice in our land, that all people would flourish and be blessed. So God, we look to you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
All right, well, good morning once again. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC, and I just want to say welcome to FBC Online. I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. This is the time in our service now where we're going to jump into uh, the Bible together and study Scripture and see what God has for us. Uh, you can turn with me, if you have a Bible, to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to be continuing our sermon series that now uh, for a few months we've been walking through this letter in the New Testament, uh, the book of 2 Timothy, where the Apostle Paul uh, is writing to this young pastor named Timothy who's serving in the city of Ephesus in the first century. And we've called this series Onward because it's all about Paul and Timothy looking forward, looking out to the future at what's ahead and trying to prepare and be ready to follow Jesus faithfully into the next season and chapter of life. And so, uh, very relatable to where we are today as we look out at an uncertain future. We want to look onward and be ready to move with the Lord into what is ahead. Uh, so, as we get ready to study the Bible in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word and that you have made yourself known to us. And so today we come with humble hearts and we ask, uh, God, by the power of your spirit, would you teach us? Would you open our eyes to see who you are and uh, what you call us to? God, would you take this time, would you shape us and form us into people who love you above all else, and who love our neighbors. God, we pray that you'd use this time. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, how old were you when you started checking the weather forecast for the next couple days or the next week? I mean, was it maybe in, in your 20s? Was it when you moved out of the house? Was it when you were in high school? Was it younger? I don't know. Does anyone here maybe have kids or your grandkids that are like really checking the weather forecast, wanting to know what's coming up the next couple days. Is it going to be hot this weekend? Is it going to be cold? I, uh, I remember growing up, my dad every day would check the weather in the paper or later uh, online and would let me know, hey, here's what the weather's going to look like today. Uh, he would always do that and I appreciated that. But I've realized now in my adult life that I, I'm not always great at checking the weather. Like, I know what general season it is. You know, it's going to be hot or it's going to be cold somewhat. But I'm not always looking like a week out and saying, hey, this weekend it's going to be raining or this weekend it's going to be really hot. I, for whatever reason, don't always pay attention to that as much. But I've realized that weather forecasts are helpful, right? Sometimes they're inaccurate, but largely that's a helpful tool to let us know, hey, here's what's coming. It's going to be wet this weekend. You might have to adjust your plans, or it's going to be really hot, and so you want to prepare for, for really high uh, temperatures. It, it lets us know, hey, here's what's ahead, and here's how you need to respond and prepare for that. And what we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, our text for the morning, is essentially this weather forecast where uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's looking out at what's coming, and he says, hey, you need to know a storm is coming. A storm's coming. What we're going to see in chapter 3 is kind of the opposite of chapter 2. So chapter 2 ended on a really hopeful, uh, positive note. 
Right? Remember we talked about being hopeful that God would grant people repentance, that people would come to faith, that God could soften even the hardest heart and draw people to himself. We're to be hopeful as Christians. But now uh, it's going to be a bit of a heavier tone. Timothy needs to be reminded, hey, it's not all gravy from here on out. A storm is coming, and the forecast prepares us for that. So, Let's see how Paul begins in verse 1, and you'll see sort of what I mean. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Pretty heavy stuff, right? Paul starts with this command to Timothy, hey, mark this or know this and he gives him the weather forecast of what's coming in the world how there will be difficult times there will be this downward spiral of moral decay and he mentions there in the last days there will be terrible times in the last days which sounds to us maybe like this this point out in the future like a long ways away but from this text we see and elsewhere in scripture that this time period, biblically speaking, the last days have already began, right? Hebrews chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 use the language of the last days to refer to this time period that we are now living in, this time period between the ascension of Jesus, right, the first coming and his ascension, and his eventual return. So this whole church age is known as the last Days. So the last days here are not as much, hey, sometime far, far away down the road we'll, we'll get here. It's more of, hey, we're living in this right now, this final act in the play before the king returns. Now, we don't know when King Jesus will return. We don't know the time exactly, but we do know that we're in this last era of history, and that day is drawing near. And Paul says, hey, the times will be terrible. Things will get difficult. Why? Well, because of this moral decay, this downward spiral in society, right? And we see evidence of some of these things today as verses uh, 2 through 5 list 19 different uh, qualities or, or descriptions of what people are going to be like. Here's what you're going to notice in people. And we don't have time to go into every single one of them. There's, again, 19 of them. But, but I want to kind of paint in broad strokes and say, what are uh, three big categories that Paul is identifying? Saying, hey, you're going to see some big trends. And, and the first is that people's loves are going to be out of order. Their loves are going to be out of order. Right? You see, this is how he begins in verse 2. What does he say? The list uh, says, people will be lovers of themselves. Okay? That's how Paul starts. 
People will be lovers of themselves. Not just in a, hey, healthy self-esteem kind of way, but in a, a sense where people's deepest affections will be turned inwards. Their primary allegiance will be to themselves. Okay, so we're talking about this, this excessive narcissistic focus. Okay, not just Christians are noticing this problem today. People in psychology journals and articles will point out how, how social media uh, and, and a rise of, of affluence and self-sufficiency and celebrity culture and pressure for people to achieve greatness and succeed, all is leading people to turn inward and focus on themselves and always, always be concerned about how they are coming off and how they are doing and their own advancement in the world. And so this has always been a part of the human heart, but it's becoming amplified. So people's love of self will be pronounced. And look at the rest of the way the text says that our loves will be off. It continues in verse 2 to say what? We'll be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. Then verse 3, people will be without love, or really they'll be hard-hearted. They'll be uh, unfeeling towards other people. Uh, Later in verse 3, people will not be lovers of the good. Or the end of verse 4, kind of a bookend to this section, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Okay, so, so put all that together. People will love themselves. People will love money. People will love pleasure. But people will not love others very well. They will not love the good. And they will not love God. It's a pretty bleak picture. And now think about this again. It's not bad to uh, use money. Money isn't bad. It's not bad to enjoy things. Pleasure isn't bad. But the issue here is that the order is all wrong. People are loving pleasure and loving themselves and loving money rather than loving people and loving God. The order is all wrong. You can love cheeseburgers. That's not a bad thing, but just don't love cheeseburgers more than you love your wife. Or There's a problem. We have to get the order right. And this goes back, I mean, back to the text, but also in history to Christian teachers and thinkers like St. Augustine, who talked about uh, the problems we see in the world are because our loves are disordered. And think of it like, like a compass. Your heart is like a compass. And it's supposed to be calibrated towards true north and, and pointing you and directing you towards, uh, towards God, towards the good life. But because of sin, uh, uh, the compass of our hearts has been uh, set off and no longer works properly and now is pointed towards other things. It's pointed towards self. It's pointed towards just seeking pleasure. It's pointed towards money, all uh, things that will lead us to certain pursuits that uh, really harm other people just so that we have what we want. And so we need our hearts to be recalibrated to be redirected towards God first, which then leads us to a proper relationship and love of other things and other people. So Paul says, hey, you're going to see that people's loves are going to be out of order. The second thing he points out is that people's hearts are going to be proud. Okay, not only will our loves be out of order, we'll love the wrong things more than we should other things, but people's hearts will be proud. 
And verse 2 simply says what? They will be boastful. They will be proud. They will be ungrateful. Verse 4, they will be uh, conceited. People will be overly impressed with themselves. And so, so don't picture like people who are caught up in sin and really discouraged by it and really weak and struggling and want to be uh, obedient to God and want to uh, obey, but they just are having a hard time. No, picture people who, who are proud and arrogant and are not bothered by their sin. They're heading in the opposite direction and they don't even care. In fact, they think they are in the right. They think they are righteous. C.S. Lewis describes pride as the great sin, the, the chief sin, perhaps, that leads to all others. And one of the reasons pride is so destructive is it's the one sin that prevents you from receiving the help and grace that you need. Right? Pride is so problematic because it's the one sin that prevents you from getting the help that you need. If you don't think you're sick, you will not go to the doctor. Right? If you don't think you need grace and forgiveness, you will not ask for grace or forgiveness. And so the Bible is very clear about how problematic pride and arrogance and boasting in the human heart is. The scriptures tell us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so there's no easier way to set yourself up against God other than pride. So you're going to see more and more of this. And then uh, the last thing, so people's uh, loves are going to be out of order, their hearts are going to be proud, and lastly, they're going to mistreat people. Look at verse 2, people are going to be abusive, uh, disobedient to their parents. Parents in the room are like, amen, I see it. Uh, Verse 3, people are unforgiving, slanderous, brutal, or cruel, basically, uh, treacherous, or, or people will betray other people. Okay, so all of these signs will say that people will mistreat one another. Their relationships will be all off and out of alignment. And then you see this actually extended example, right? If you look at me at verse 6, they're the kind of people who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. This is not saying that women are inherently gullible. It's simply saying that these particular women were weak and gullible. Verse 7, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They're men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, as in the case of those men. Their folly will be clear to everyone. So this example here, specifically in verse 6, is talking about these false teachers and how unfortunately in the ancient world it was common for false teachers or divisive people in the church to target uh, women that were uh, uneducated back then. They would kind of build their trust and infiltrate this woman's home, possibly wealthy widows, and kind of set up shop as a base of operations for their false teaching. Uh, These women, again, because they were less educated back then, were more likely to be swayed or to be led astray. And so this is something likely going on in Ephesus that Paul is telling Timothy, hey, you need to be aware of this. And so in addition to all the moral decay listed above, uh, also these false teachers are going to take advantage of women. 
They're going to oppose the truth. And he mentioned Janus and Jambres in there from the Old Testament. Those were uh, Pharaoh's magicians. So if you remember in the book of Exodus how Pharaoh's magicians would kind of come along and try to uh, recreate the plagues that, that God would bring. And they'd try to say, hey, look, we're, we're doing it too. They would oppose what God and Moses were up to. And so he's pointing to them saying, hey, like those men in the Old Testament, these first century teachers are opposing the truth. And so people's loves are going to be out of order. Their hearts are going to be proud. They're going to mistreat other people and abuse other people. We see this today, tragically, child abuse and uh, uh, sexual abuse. Abuse even in the church, friends. It seems like almost every other week I'm reading a story about some prominent Christian leader that has some, some scandal of abuse that they either uh, did themselves or they have allowed uh, in their church without addressing it. So we see abuse. We see people be just really harsh and critical with one another and slander one another, and lies are spread almost effortlessly online nowadays. Uh, People are cruel and cold. And so we see this really dark forecast where Paul tells Timothy, hey, a storm is coming. Things are going to be difficult and terrible. And this isn't good news. And so we have to wonder, as Timothy likely was, as he was reading this, saying, okay, so what do I do about this? How do I respond? And thankfully, Paul's application point is pretty clear, right? Look at verse 5. Have nothing to do with such people. Have nothing to do with such people. You are going to see this moral decay around you, this downward spiral of of sin. I don't want you to celebrate it. I don't want you to buddy up to people that are heading that direction. I want you to have nothing to do, it says, with such people. It's a pretty firm word. Now, what we have to do is answer a very important question right now. When when Paul says in verse 5, have nothing to do with such people, who are the such people that we're talking about? Are, are we talking about, uh, you know, pagan Pete across the street from you? You know, your neighbor who wants nothing to do with church or, or spiritual things. Is Paul saying, hey, steer clear of all the, the messy, sinful people out in the world that are on this downward trajectory. Stay away from them. Withdraw. Because some people will look at this text and say, yeah, that's exactly what it's saying. And that's why we need to become monks and embrace monasticism. And we need to, you know, pool our resources, buy some property up in the Napa Valley and go withdraw from evil society and camp out in our little compound and drink good wine and sing hymns. And that'll kind of be how we do things. Now, as great as that may sound, uh, the wine and the hymns and, and so on, uh, I would argue that's not what Paul is trying to say. Because remember the context here. Paul is addressing this issue of false teaching within the church. Okay, He's talking about people who are claiming to be Christians. He's not talking about your pagan neighbor who wants nothing to do with God and has all kinds of sin in in his life. He's talking about uh, people within the church and all the sin that they have to deal with. Okay, look at verse 5. 
He says, these people having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. So we're not talking about people out there. We're talking about people in here, in, in the church, who have this appearance of godliness, this outward appearance of piety, but who lack genuinely transformed hearts. They have fake godliness, fake piety, like fake crab meat you find in sushi. It's not the real stuff. We want the real deal. And so we can look to these verses and say, okay, yes, there's going to be this general moral decay within society. People are going to get pretty, uh, things are going to get pretty bleak. There's going to be this kind of downward spiral of sin in the world out there, sure. But more specifically, this text and these instructions here are telling us how to uh, deal with and focus on issues within the church. And this makes us think of uh, the Apostle Paul as he was writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Maybe you know the text where, where there's this uh, case of incest within the church. Okay, some real Jerry Springer stuff. A dude is like married or sleeping with his dad's wife sort of thing. And, and he says this. Paul writes about this issue in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Okay, so I'm not talking about people out there, he's saying. But verse 11, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who, and here's a key, claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or slander, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Okay, really similar thing going on here. He's saying, hey, we're talking about people who have this form of godliness, this outward appearance of godliness, who claim to be Christians and yet are unrepentant in their sin. Okay, that's the key. We're not talking about perfection here. We're not talking about, hey, if you are part of this church and you sin or stumble or have some issue come up, you're, you're out of here. That's not what we're talking about. And, and that's really important to say because if you're here this morning and listening to this and you are burdened by your sin and you're feeling convicted over the sin in your life and you're heavy hearted and you feel the sense of guilt and shame, uh, this point is not to burden you further because there's grace for you. The good news of the gospel is that God loves you and Jesus died for you and has offered you forgiveness for your sin. You can bring it to him and he will cleanse you from your sin. He will forgive you completely. He will restore you to a right relationship with him. And so I, I don't say this to burden you further with your sin. I say this to point you to the Savior who loves you. So know that. But what we're talking about here specifically are people who are in the church but lack genuine repentance, okay? People who don't have any grief over their sin, who are, are heading unapologetically in the wrong direction and are likely deceptive and deceiving other people. And I can tell you uh, from years in ministry now, there's a clear difference between someone who is grieved 
and burdened and heavy-hearted and broken over their sin, and someone who is living in sin and just doesn't care. There's a difference. And I remember at our old church in Colorado, uh, there was a young man there who was uh, discipling other people, who was uh, teaching other people in the church, a Bible study leader, and he started to get pretty squirrely in his theology. He started to deny the doctrine of the Trinity. He started to teach false things about Jesus, and he had to be confronted. Uh, The leaders of the church, the elders, the pastors stepped in and said, hey, what you're teaching and what you're leading people in is, is not right. It's not true. It's not what the scriptures teach. But he uh, doubled down. He was unapologetic about this heresy he was spreading. And so he had to be uh, removed from his leadership position. They, they took him out of that place. And ultimately, he, he left the church and he, he sadly really just went off the deep end. But it was the, the church's responsibility to step in and say, hey, this is not okay. What's being taught here, what's being modeled here, this is not okay. And so we have to remember again that this text is dealing with false teaching, unrepentant false teachers in the church. Okay, we're not talking about about weak and struggling sinners. And so today, friends, we have to realize there are are false teachers. There are, are people who are writing books and writing blogs and writing articles with the label Christian on them in Christian circles somewhat that are leading people astray. I think of people like Jen Hatmaker and authors like Glennon Doyle and authors like Rachel Hollis, uh, these really popular uh, women's authors who write books and have blogs and have these conferences that they speak at. And if you look at the content of their message, they use the label Christian, but the content is antithetical to the gospel because the whole focus of it is look at you. I mean, it's really just self-promotion, self-focus. Hey, you have what you need, and so go and pursue your dreams, and you're the hero of the story, and go get what you want. And that's their message, which again is, is the opposite of the gospel, which is you don't have what you need. Jesus has what you need, so look to him and find joy and identity and life and freedom in him. And so friends, be warned if you're reading those books. Be warned. They're not pointing you to Jesus. And kind of on, if that's more of like a progression Christian approach, uh, progressive Christian, there's also people in kind of more conservative circles that, I got to be honest, are making me really uncomfortable when I see sort of the, the fusion of Jesus and America. Okay, there are these teachers that are fusing Christianity and Republican politics or Christianity and, and, and nationalism and making it seem like our ultimate allegiance is to the Republican Party or to America rather than to Jesus. And there are churches that are again like waving American flags on their stage, singing the star-spangled banner in worship, like really strange stuff that has the label of Christian on it, but is antithetical to the gospel. So friends, we have to be wise and discerning people. So we are committed first and foremost to Jesus. And just because something has the label Christian on it does not mean that it is true or in line with Scripture. 
Friends, a mentor of mine uh, has once said that the role of a pastor is to feed the sheep, spank the goats, and shoot the wolves. Okay, feed the sheep, spank the goats, shoot the wolves. And so what we're talking about here is the whole spanking the goats and shooting the wolves. We're not talking about uh, mistreating or bullying uh, weak and weary and sinful sheep. There is refuge for you, friend, here. But for those that are unrepentant, running the opposite direction, while maintaining the outward appearance of godliness, that's a problem that the church has to address. And friends, I will be clear. This is not just something for pastors or uh, elders or board members, deacons, to deal with. Okay, it's not just something that, hey, well, Matt will deal with that, or you know, the board, they'll take care of that. In some instances, yes, and we have had to deal with issues like this. Uh, but you have a part to play in this. The people of the church, you have a responsibility. If we go back to that 1 Corinthians 5 passage, right, the Jerry Springer incest situation when Paul is saying, like, hey, you guys need to deal with this, what he says, he says, aren't you the ones that are to judge those inside the church? So, hey, God's going to take care of people out there. God's going to deal with that. You don't worry about judging them. God will handle that. What you need to worry about is the people within the church. You are to judge and discern what is proper and right for the life of the church. And so he says, aren't you supposed to judge in that way? And he's not talking there to pastors. He's not talking there to elders. He's saying, hey, aren't y'all supposed to be about this? He says, this is for y'all to do. You all have this responsibility. Getting a little, having some church in here, a little southern exposure. Okay, but his point The people of the church, you have the collective responsibility to deal with these sin issues. Not just pastors, not just church leaders. Deal with false teachers, with sin in the church. And so you might have a part to play in saying, hey, we want our church to honor God, to be, uh, have a faithful witness in our community. And so you have to hold one another accountable. So there might be sin issues and things that you're aware of that are not healthy or appropriate or right to be taking place for Christians. And God might be calling you to confront in love, to sit down with someone and express your concern, to, to again, resist sin in the church. That's uh, the first response here to all this downward trajectory. Response number one is, is resist. Don't associate with those things. Make sure that the church does not live in them. But our second response is, is equally important. Not just, hey, resist all this sin you see around you. But response number two is repent. Response number two is repent. And here's the deal. I've listened to many a sermon where I'm nodding along and saying, oh, this is so great, and I hope that so-and-so really hears this. Right? Oh, this is so good. I'm really glad they're sitting next to me listening to this one. This is just what they need. And in that moment, I've been convicted, and God kind of smacks me and says, hey, this is for you. Me? Say, don't, don't, don't worry about them, okay? First, I want you to realize how this applies to to you. What about you and your heart? And I bet, friends, as, as we read through verses 1 through 5, or really 1 through 9, we would say, man, some of these issues are true 
of me. Some of these sins that Paul lists, I have seen in my own life. And so before we go on a, on a crusade to purify the church, we need to start with ourselves. We need to start with humble repentance. A few months ago, I got this letter in the mail that was a, a summons for jury duty. I know, jury duty, right? And I, and I looked at it, and I did what I do often with pieces of mail. I uh, set it down in this stack of mail that was inside the house, and then that stack of mail got transferred to this other bigger stack of mail, right? You have stacks of mail in your house, you know what I'm talking about, and then I forgot about it. I know. You can see where this is heading. Okay, so I forgot about it for weeks. The jury date uh, came and went. I was, again, completely forgot about it until randomly, weeks later, I realized, just out of the blue, oh my goodness, what happened to that jury duty summons? I totally forgot about it. And so I'm like, I'm stressed out. I'm like, oh no, like if you don't go to jury duty, there are consequences. Uh, They could fine you. They could take you to jail. I got kids. We got a baby on the way. I can't go to jail. We got to figure this out. I'm I'm stressed. I'm feeling the weight out. I'm digging through the mail uh, stack that I still hadn't gotten to. And I'm trying to figure out where is this? And I look at it and surely, yep, I was right. The date uh, came and went. The date had passed. And I was like, this is not good. This is not good. So I pull up the computer. It gives you a little website you can go to. I go to the website and frantically typing in my code, seeing if it's going to tell me. I'm hoping it's going to tell me, hey, you weren't actually needed that day. So I go, I log in, I see, I put my number in, and I see, it says you're no longer needed for jury duty that day. So my number wasn't actually called. I didn't actually have to be there. And I was so relieved. Because I was feeling the weight, I was feeling the potential consequences, and then I realized, whew, I'm relieved. I don't have to bear that. And in this small, silly way, I was reminded of the relief that comes when our guilt and shame and sin is taken away. And this is, in an even uh, infinitely greater way, the good news of the gospel. Because apart from Christ, on our own merits, we we stand condemned, guilty because of our sin. Facing judgment, separation from God. We feel the weight of that. We feel the guilt. We feel the shame. Hopefully, uh, the Holy Spirit is convicting us of our sin and our need to repent and the consequences of judgment and hell that we face. But the good news of the gospel is that there is forgiveness for your sins offered. The good news of the gospel is that God loves you and wants to forgive you and cleanse you and make you new and adopt you into his family and give you a new life and a new heart and a hope and a future and a relationship with him. This is all offered to us through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not only our king and our authority, but he is our savior. He came to die for you and for me. And so we can say through Jesus, whoever would believe in him would not perish, would not stand condemned, but would be considered righteous, forgiven, adopted into the family of God. And so friends, 
Response number two to this reality of sin is to repent. And maybe you're here this morning and you have been caught in unrepentant sin and you've been running the opposite direction. You've been running away from God and you haven't given it a second thought until now. Well, there's, there's a reason you're here this morning. There's a reason you're listening to this. And God is inviting you to, to turn from your sin, to experience the, the freedom and life that he alone can offer you. Saying so you're not going to find fulfillment and joy and satisfaction in these other things you're chasing. Come to me. Come home. Trust in Jesus. Or maybe you're here this morning again. Your rebellion uh, is a little less obvious. It's a little more hidden. You've been coming to church every week. You sit in the pew when you're able to. But in your heart, you're harboring this secret attitude of pride or, or lust or bitterness or unforgiveness. And God's saying to you, repent. Confess that sin, turn from it, give it to me, and experience forgiveness and grace. And so what I want to do simply here this morning, friends, is give us a time to confess our sins. One of the most important ways we can worship God is to speak honestly with him about the sins and struggles in our lives. Not only is God already aware of them, but he stands ready to forgive. He's already died for them and offers you forgiveness. So what we're going to do over the next few moments is I, I'm going to invite you to consider maybe one why God has brought you here in the first place. And I'm going to invite you to uh, consider confessing your sin before the Lord. I'm going to lead us in a short time of prayer, a time of confession. And then uh, it's going to be real simple. I'm just going to leave some space uh, for you to confess your sins to God in the quietness of your heart, wherever you are. So I'll introduce it. I'll open it up. I'll leave some space for you. And then I'll say, amen. All right? Well, God, we read in your word today, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. God, we acknowledge with heavy hearts that sometimes these descriptions have been true of us. And so now we confess our sins to you.
God, you have told us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we together now celebrate the good news of the gospel and the assurance of salvation that all who have confessed their sins in faith through Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven through the work of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Lord, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.